friends, thank you for joining us today, even electronically. We're so hoping that it won't be too long before we can gather together again in God's house. I have heard from a number of you who have stated how much you miss being with God's people. And I don't mind telling you, I am amongst that number. I very much want to be back with you, seeing your smiling faces. And I miss you, love you, and, uh, but I'm thankful that you're joining at least in this way. And uh, I want to begin today with a story uh, of a group of travelers who were coming into a, a, a major town. And there was an elderly man uh, along the way. And so this group stopped and said, Sir, what are people like in that town? And this elderly gentleman looked at him and said, Well, what were they like where you came from? He said, well, they were terrible. They were mean. They were stingy. They were just uh, people that we're glad to get away from. He said, well, I think you'll find the people here pretty much the same way. And as soon as that group, that, uh, group were gone, another group of people came in, obviously moving from somewhere else, and asked the same gentleman, what are the people like here in this city? He said, well, what were they like where you came from? I said, well, we hated to leave. Those people were generous, loving, kind, and we're going to miss them. And that's what they were like. The old man said, well, I think you'll find the people here the same way. Well, the old gentleman was wise, and what he was saying is important for all of us to know, that one's perspective often determines one's circumstance. But wouldn't you agree with me that we spend most of our lives trying to change our circumstance? Excuse me, yeah, trying to change our circumstance. And we do very little to change how we see life. I'm telling you, as a pastor for a long time, I've seen people say, if I just had a better wife, my life would be different. If I had a better husband, my life would be so much better. If I had a better job, if I had a better education, if I had a better fill-in-the-blank, my life would be so much better. But I'm going to tell you, we do very little to try to change our perspective. And I will tell you, it's our perspective that determines the outcome of our lives so much more than our circumstance. Because you can change circumstance, and people do. They get new spouses. They get new jobs. They get new everything. And often they find themselves back in the same place. So... I will tell you that as we study God's Word today in John chapter 12, and I want you to go ahead and turn there and open it up and leave it open, we're going to see an amazing array of, of perspectives about who Christ was, different uh, attitudes toward Him, different perspectives uh, about who He was and who they believed Him to be. And we will see that their recognition of Him as the Messiah or their lack of recognition of him as the Messiah was determined by obviously different perspectives. And so uh, we're going to see in John chapter 12 uh, several major crises, plural. We're going to, as we've already seen back in the earlier part of the book of John, we have seen many of the disciples uh, stop walking with Jesus even though he had said he was the way. And in the chapter we're going to study beginning in this session, we see that many would not believe in him, even though he had clearly pointed out that he was the truth. 
So we see some crises occurring in the life of Christ. In the first 12 chapters of the gospel, we have noticed one witness after another and one proof after another, uh, miracles, signs, wonders, uh, people attesting to who he was, and yet the religious leaders who saw all of that and were witness to it and had, had access to information about it, they continued to reject who he was. They continued to fail to believe in him. And so as we go into John chapter 12, we're going to see Jesus relating to really uh, several groups of persons, four different groups of persons, and we can learn lessons from each one of those. Well, we'll see varying perspectives about who they felt Christ was. And we begin today by looking at John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. It's a powerful, powerful passage. And I want you to study it with me today. The Bible says six days after, uh, before the birth, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was. The one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Wouldn't it be great to go to dinner with Jesus? Uh, they had a dinner for him that evening. Martha was serving them. And Lazarus was one of the, those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary took out a pound of fragrant oil, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of that expensive oil. And then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, Why wasn't this fragrant oil sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of it, of what was put into it. Jesus answered, verse 7, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you always will have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. And then verse 9, a large crowd of the Jews learned that he was there. They came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one he had raised from the dead. Therefore the chief priest decided to kill, also to kill Lazarus, because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. What an amazing text. What an amazing passage. And first of all, we see the devotion of uh, Martha and others. But we see devotion in verses 1 through 3. Now Jesus knew that the Jewish leaders were out to arrest him. This was obvious. They had uh, threatened him before. They had sought to kill him, to stalt him before. And yet why would he come back, many ask, to the very area where his uh, most harsh accusers were? Those who sought to take his life. Well, Jesus was following the holy timetable of the Father. And so he was indeed doing what God wanted him to do. So we see here him returning back to Bethany, which is a village just a couple of miles north 
of the Garden of Gethsemane, just over the hill there. So he wants to spend a quiet time in Bethany with his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And we see in these verses the account of, Martha, of Mary's anointing of Jesus with this expensive ointment, this expensive perfume called nard. Now I will tell you just real quickly, not to confuse this with that which we see talked about over in the book of Luke, where a former harlot came in and anointed the feet of Jesus. Those are two separate occurrences. One occurred in Galilee. This one occurs in Judea. This is Mary's anointing of him. It's separate. And when you combine uh, the other two gospel accounts that mention this one, and that is Matthew and uh, Luke, I believe, when you combine those three accounts, you'll see that Mary anointed both his head and his feet, different than that which occurred in the Luke account uh, about the harlot. We also know uh, that this was an act of pure love from Mary's standpoint. Uh, we find it to be a beautiful expression of her love for him. We know that he was about to endure suffering and death. He was on his way to the cross at this point. So what Mary did was public. It was spontaneous. It was sacrificial. It was lavish. It was personal. And she was unembarrassed to do so. My friends, the Lord Jesus commended her. And he defended her in front of Judas and the other disciples. Even though what she did was very expensive. This was basically a year's wages for the working class. It brought a fragrance to the very house in which they were going to have dinner. And what she did would be known for centuries to come. Well, when she first came to the feet of Jesus, uh, she took the place of a slave by anointing him. That was the work of a slave. The Bible doesn't tell us this, but we also know, well, maybe it does, she undid her hair, and a Jewish woman never did that in public. She humbled herself. She was criticized for it. And I will tell you, often people are criticized when they do their very best for Christ. Often people are criticized uh, when they have the kind of attitude of selflessness and sacrifice that she did. But that's exactly what it was. She was devoted to him. And she wanted to show and give her very best to him. I ask you this day, my friends, do we express that same kind of devotion to Christ? When is the last time we really sacrificed for him? When is the last time we actually went above and beyond Friends, many times we'd have to be honest and say, well, I don't know if I've ever really sacrificed to the point that it hurt. It, that it hurt. Well, my friends, we desperately need to think how we can be devoted to Christ like Mary was. We need to think about how we can give unto the Lord in ways like she did that are absolutely selfless and sacrificial. When's the last time we did that? Well, second, I want us to see there was not only devotion in this occurrence, in this uh, passage, but there was also duplicity, disingenuousness. In fact, if you look at verses 4 through 6, you will see that it was Judas who started the criticism. 
Now, when you look at this passage, combine it with the other uh, passages, and I just remembered it was Matthew and Mark, you, you see that the other disciples even join in their criticism of Mary. Isn't that sad? Uh, they started taking up for Judas and his criticism of Mary. By the way, John 12 verse 4 records the very first public words of Judas. Well, it's sad, isn't it? It's sad that he would accuse her of wasting when indeed he was the one who had been, according to this text, stealing money from the treasury that he was given oversight over. Isn't that sad? And this reveals his heart. And maybe that's why to this day you'll meet women and daughters and granddaughters with the name of Mary, but you'll meet nobody with the name of Judas. It indeed has become a synonym for treachery and, and uh, duplicity and absolute, absolute deceit. Well, we do see that deceit in Judas' reaction and behavior, and we see his ongoing behavior, accompanying behavior of hurtful speech and greed manifest as he would leave soon, according to Matthew, I believe, and go straight out and betray our Lord Jesus. Oh, my friends, it's sad to see what happened here. He wasn't really worried about her spending her money on Jesus. It was what I call a smokescreen issue. And I'm going to tell you in many churches there are people who act out against the ministry and act out against the church when indeed it's a smokescreen for something else that's happening in their lives. Maybe they've not been faithful in some way in supporting the church. And so instead of dealing with what's going on in their own life, they begin to attack the church, attack the ministry. And that often happens. But what we see here is utter duplicity, disingenuineness as Judas and, yes, unfortunately some others began to attack Mary for this selfless act of devotion. Well, quickly, I want us to see something else very important. Listen carefully. Because the third major point we see in verses 9 through 11 is the drawing power of two resurrection men. We're going to see what I'm talking about. But remember, there was devotion, there was duplicity, but now we see drawing power. Look at those verses again, and you'll see one of the most interesting phenomenon in all of the Bible. A large crowd of the Jews learned that he was there. And they didn't come just because of Jesus, though he was the primary draw. They came also because of Lazarus. Now, can you imagine Lazarus going from place to place. Aren't you? Didn't you die? Yeah, I did. You're alive now. Yes, I am. What happened? And then he tells them the story of how Jesus brought him forth after four days of being dead. Can you imagine the crowds that would have gathered around him? In our modern day world, that have been paparazzi chasing him down, wanting a picture. We would see reporters going after him, wanting a story. Tell us what happened. How did it feel? How did it feel to die and then get brought back? Wouldn't you not rather have stayed in heaven? Tell us about it. Give us a story. And we'll put it on our Twitter feed. And we'll put it on social media. And this is going to go viral. 
Lazarus? Well, it did go viral. And so we see these two men drawing people. Why do I call them resurrection men? One had already been resurrected, and the other soon would. So we have two resurrection men here. Now, interestingly, I want to tell you, there are no recorded words from Lazarus. Anyway. But let me tell you, his life was a witness. His life was a living testimony. He was a living miracle. And so that put him in the crosshairs. It gave people a lot of interest. Yes, they were interested in him. But it also put him in the crosshairs of the religious leaders. And that's the why the Bible says in verse 10, Therefore the chief priests decided also to kill Lazarus. They wanted to kill as well as kill Jesus. You remember they had thrown the blind man out of the synagogue because he gave attestation to the Messiahship of Christ. They kicked him out of the, out of the uh, synagogue. Well, now they want to go even further and try to put Lazarus back in the tomb. Kill him. Because he was leading people to faith in Christ. Oh, my friends, we've seen this happen over the centuries. When people want to accept evidence, they must try to get rid of that evidence. Because everything Lazarus stood for was a testimony to the power of the resurrection of Christ. They wanted to silence him, be done with him, kill him for a second time. Oh, my friends, we read in these first 11 verses of John 12 what was supposed to have been a quiet evening with Jesus and his friends, an evening of dining. In spite of the cruel way the disciples treated Mary, Still, this evening must have brought encouragement to Christ because He knows what's going to happen. He knows soon that He will be betrayed, not just by Judas. He knows soon He will experience that night called the night of agony of prayer there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows He will be arrested and taken across the Kidron Valley up to Caiaphas' house where He will spend the night. We know he will indeed go through the humiliation of the civil trial there in Antonio's Stratofortress before Pilate. But he needed this night. He needed this night to rest. He needed this night to be around people who loved him unconditionally. He needed that evening of encouragement and strength before he faced what was forthcoming. And I want to close this message by simply asking you whether or not we bring joy to the heart of our Lord Jesus also. Are we people who bring joy to Him like Mary and Martha and Lazarus? Are we people by our work and our witness? Are we people by our worship who bring joy to the heart of Christ like they did? I want to leave you with that question. With that thought, are we bringing joy to our Lord Jesus through our work, our worship, and our witness? He needs us. He's given these responsibilities to us. And if we fulfill them, we bring joy to His heart. 
I have to confess there have been many times I brought sadness to his heart because I've not done all I ought to do in worship and work and witness and ministry. Let's submit today that we want to bring only joy to the heart of our Lord Jesus. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, thank you so much for these verses in the Gospel of John. God, we see the devotion of this dear woman, Mary. We see her love for Christ, her unconditional, unembarrassed love for Him. And then we see the disingenuousness and the duplicity, the treachery of Judas. But God, we also see how You, through Your Son Jesus and through the resurrected Lazarus, brought people to faith. Oh God, we want to bring joy to you as we also bring people to faith in you. Oh God, help us right now just to ask, are we bringing joy to Jesus? And I pray the answer would be an unqualified yes. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.